It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Beverly Sills episode of The Muppet Show with our own very special guest star, Anthony Strand. Yay! Hey everyone, welcome back. So glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are Adam Grossworth, Michal Richardson, Christy Bauer, and the aforementioned special guest star, Anthony Strand. Hey, Anthony. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. Thanks for coming back. So uh, listeners who've been with us for a while will remember Anthony, but I'm going to read you his bio anyway. Anthony Strand grew up in North Dakota, where he sometimes got to watch Muppet Show reruns at his grandma's house. He's now a school librarian in Minnesota and the co-host of Moving Right Along, a Muppet movie podcast from toughpigs.com. Anthony has the honor of being our first returning, returning guest to the podcast, having previously joined us twice to discuss both the Avery Schreiber episode and the George Burns episode. Now, Anthony, you have previously shared with us about your history with the Muppets. So right now, instead, why don't you tell us any story from your past that might add interesting context to our discussion today? All right. So my son, Miles, was born in April 2018. And at that time, Muppet Show was not on Disney Plus yet because Disney Plus did not exist. And of course, seasons four and five had never come out on DVD. So uh, my wife, Roz, and I split like baby duties. So I was kind of on baby duty anytime between midnight and 6 a.m. And I decided I had seasons four and five on Google Drive at that time. Still do. I'll never give them up just in case they go away. And I decided I was going to watch all the way through seasons four and five and only in Miles's room while feeding him in the middle of the night. And look, first of all, in general, that's a, a trippy thing to do is watch the Muppet show by yourself at 3 a.m. with a baby but especially this episode, which I think is the weirdest episode of The Muppet Show, but especially because that's the first time I saw it, was in the middle of the night while uh, feeding formula to a very small baby. So so there you go. <laughs> Love that. It's weird that I don't think it's that weird. <laughs> no? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the the, the uh, Is it weird that you, so you don't think this episode is that weird? That's no. Weird? Oh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's weird, but it's like, Muppety weird. I don't know. We'll get into it's it. It's like a regular I'm excited. Of weird. Yeah. Here is a Muppet News Flash. We are here this week, as you may have gathered, to talk about Season 4, Episode 9 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of June 26, 1979, and it aired in New York on November 12, 1979. It was number 8 in the air order in between Victor Borga and Liza Minnelli. So, like, there's a joke there somewhere, but I can't quite get to it. In the news, a poll finds personal hopes high, but gloomy outlook on nation. Same, the past, same. (laughs) Margaret Thatcher vows to bring major changes to the governance of Northern Ireland. I'm sure that will work out well. The Iran hostage crisis is still going on. The Country Music Association invited the Chinese ambassador to Nashville as part of a campaign to get the people of China into country music. And I just have to read this quote. At this morning's brunch, Johnny Cash presented his personal guitar to the ambassador, who took it with a huge grin and immediately tried to pick the strings. The feat was accomplished when the massive singer reached around Mr. Chi's back to cord the strings while the ambassador strummed. That's adorable. There's a CNN documentary about Jimmy Carter and his relationship with musicians during his administration. And this incident, I mean, not the Johnny Cash guitar situation, but the, the reach like, around the, the, <laughs> the Nashville, China symposium yeehawsium yeah so if, if you're intrigued I, I mostly i mean i know very little about johnny cash i did not realize he was so large 
<laughs> to be described as massive in the New York Times. Um, anyway, there's a great picture, not of Johnny Cash, but of Barbara Mandrell and the ambassador, which will, of course, be on the show page. Uh, there's a great ad for sake cocktails. Great in the, you know, it's 1979 way and the what a mysterious and foreign and exotic drink. But also these all sound terrible. Like, it, just drink it. Like, you don't need to put it in a Bloody Mary. That's really weird, I think. Ooh. Oh. In movie theaters, The Rose, which I can't remember if we've talked about before, but that's uh, oh, Bette Midler uh, classic. I've never seen it, but we did have to sing the song in fifth or sixth grade music class. In theater on Broadway, uh, a a play called Romantic Comedy, starring Anthony Perkins and Mia Farrow, guest of the oh. Muppet Valent- Valentine's Day special, uh, written by Bernard Spade, who was also the creator of The Partridge Family, The Flying Nun, and the play and movie same time next year. On the Cashbox pop charts, the number one song was Heartache Tonight by the Eagles. The number one album was The Long Run, also by the Eagles. Elsewhere in the top 10 was Pop Music by M, which feels very 80s to me. And at number eight, uh, Tusk by Fleetwood Mac, which feels very 70s to me. And maybe this has come up before, but I'm sort of shocked that was a top 10 song. I mean, I love it, but it's such a weird single. But Fleetwood Mac was so oh, yeah. huge at that time. Like, and it I- was an era of weird singles. I mean, Herb Alpert was number True. one. True. I mean, and also yeah. Pop Music <laughs> sure. is also pretty weird. Very weird. On TV, uh, CBS had our regular lineup. ABC has uh, 2020 with the headline, TV child stars, is there pain behind the fame? I'm going to go with yes. And Or does it stay mainly in the plane? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I can't quite get to a Dana Plato joke with a rhyme, but I want to. Okay. Also on 2020, teenage pregnancy, colon, ready or not. <laughs> okay. Uh, NBC had Little House on the Prairie, followed by The Omen. That's a nice right? Um, and PBS had a uh, special called The Real War in Space. So if you weren't scared enough about the Cold War in 1979, here comes the whole thing about it happening in space. But so, so is it called that? Is it The Real War in Space because of Star Wars? I oh, probably, probably. Really good point. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. 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 But the ad does not lean into that, which is a poor choice on their part, actually. Yeah. Uh, Kermit has asked me to introduce tonight's guest star. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the truly great singers of country and western music, the queen of Nashville, here she is, Miss Bev Sills! Well, I mean, Fozzie just kind of did my job for me. We can just move on to the next note. Not a member of Prosby Sills and Nash. Uh, In fact, Beverly Sills was an opera diva, a spokesperson, and personality. Belle Silverman was born in 1929 in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, to an immigrant Jewish family. Her father came from Romania and her mother from Russia. From birth, she was known to those closest to her as Bubbles, a nickname that stuck even as she traded in Belle for Beverly. Perhaps because the family was poor, or perhaps because her mother simply recognized early talent, at age four, Bubbles began her professional career on the radio, graduating from a children's program to major bows to a soap opera, all before she turned 12. At that point, her father temporarily put a stop to her career so she could focus on her studies, but she was able to split her time between Erasmus Hall, which is the same Brooklyn high school that gave us Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond, Clive Davis, and many, many, many others, and the Professional Children's School, uh, which is the same school that gave us Liza Minnelli, among many others, (laughs) all while she continued taking private voice lessons. In 1945, she graduated at the age of 16 and began her adult career. 
Unlike most opera divas of her generation, she did not go to Europe for training, but rather worked her way up from touring in Gilbert and Sullivan operettas to leading roles in Verdi operas. After 10 years on the road, she made her debut at the New York City Opera and won raves for her performance as Rosalinda and Deflatermouse. That same year, she met and married Peter Greenow of the Boston Greenows, although at this point he was living in Cleveland and working as an associate editor of The Plain Dealer, which his family owned. Along with her new husband, Beverly gained three stepdaughters. She stayed in Cleveland, but commuted regularly to New York to perform at City Opera, to which she had grown fiercely loyal. Around this time, City Opera was falling on hard times, which if you know City Opera, you know that this is a recurring theme in the life of that institution. And Beverly joined forces with other stars to petition the board to take an aggressive course to save the opera, which led to a revival of the institution's good fortunes for now. At the end of the decade, she gave birth to her daughter, Meredith, called Muffy, and two years later to a son, Peter. Both were diagnosed with significant disabilities within six weeks of each other. This had a big impact on her outlook and would lead her to devote significant time to the charity The March of Dimes, where she eventually became the chair of the Board of Trustees for several years. Beverly took time off from her career to focus on her family, but once she was coaxed back to the stage of the City Opera, she found that the experience had unlocked a new freedom within her, and she entered her most creatively fruitful and lauded stage of her career. The Cleveland Plain Dealer was purchased for an absurd amount of money, a significant portion of which went to Peter, so the family left Ohio for Massachusetts. Peter wrote for the Boston Globe, and Bubbles began an ongoing collaboration with director Sarah Caldwell of the Opera Company of Boston. In 1966, when City Opera moved from City Center to Lincoln Center, Beverly made headlines as Cleopatra in the opera's production of Handel's Julius Caesar. She had to fight for the part, and essentially she threatened the director of the opera that if he didn't cast her, she would rent out Carnegie Hall and give a competing concert the same night where she would sing five arias from Julius Caesar in direct competition. He relented, and she won some of the best reviews of her life. And it's interesting, at the same time, the Met was doing a different opera about Cleopatra, and so a lot of international press was in town to cover the Met's opera, but since now they were both at Lincoln Center, they're like, oh, we'll go check out this other one too. And so that ended up benefiting her and get her sort of broader reviews than she might have otherwise received. What made her special was not just her superb instrument and incredible musicianship, but also a tremendous acting talent that served sly comedy and harsh tragedy equally as well. She was as witty and entertaining out of character as she was on stage, which led to her having a significant presence on television talk shows, eventually hosting her own one in the 70s called Lifestyles with Beverly Sills. Interestingly, lots of opera singers performed on The Tonight Show, but Beverly was the first, and I would guess maybe only, to ever be a guest host of The Tonight Show, which is pretty cool. In 1969, she made her European debut at La Scala, cementing her place in the opera stratosphere. In 1975, she finally made her debut at the Met in New York. The following year, she convinced the Met to bring her longtime collaborator Sarah Caldwell in to conduct her in La Traviata, making Caldwell the first woman to take up that baton for that prestigious company. As the 70s drew to a close, Beverly's voice began to waver, and she announced her retirement from the stage would be in 1980. You'll hear a reference to this in this episode of Muppet Show, which was taped during this transitional moment in her career. She would go on to become the general director of her beloved New York City Opera, which was once again in need of a savior to rescue it from debt and uncertainty. Over time, she modernized the opera, introducing a new American repertoire, reducing ticket prices to make it accessible to new audiences, and introducing super titles before any other American opera company had adopted the practice. 
It was not an overnight transformation, but she did successfully lift the company out of debt and into the black. In 1994, she would bring her fundraising prowess to Lincoln Center, where she became chairman of the board. And in 2002, she would do the same for the Met. She died in 2007. And I'm sorry to add that New York City Opera once again sort of lost its footing uh, sometime in the last decade and has since closed, which was very sad. Although I am grateful that in the I've lived in New York for a decade and I was able to see some of the last productions of New York City Opera, including uh, Candide starring Linda Lavin, who is an okay. earlier Muppet hmm. Show guest star of the season. Nice. Full circle. Anyway, does anyone have Beverly Sills memories, thoughts, feelings that they would like to share? I mean, yes and no. Uh, it's we've talked about my you know New York lonely boy child status. Uh, I am not uh, an opera person. I don't come from an opera household. But like she was present, um, and I think a lot of it for me in my memory is this episode. There's an opera episode of Mister Rogers, which I would have sworn also guest starred her, and I looked it up and it did not. So I think I had like merged the two things in my brain. But like in in that monoculture way that we talked about, this might have been like a, a more narrow like New York slice of the monoculture. But like this was a person who was famous enough that as a child I knew who she was, and I I got the joke of of her being on the Muppet Show, and like you just knew the name, and like maybe it was from like it being on the news or or because she did so many of these appearances. She did host live from Lincoln Center for uh, a long time as well. So if you were the kind of gay kid who say for example watched the little night music at new york city Opera yeah. on pbs she did the i wasn't until or... later but i think <laughs> but i do think probably like there were there were probably like ads on pbs you know between sesame street and mr rogers for the upcoming thing right, right? like she was just like around I, I do think that that she occupied a a fairly visible place in the wider monoculture because i i didn't have any memories other than just knowing the name generally and and knowing that opera was her deal so I, you know, I pulled out my uh, dial a boomer and talked to my mom and she was like, oh yeah, I, I saw her on Carol Brunette once. So like, I, mm. I think, I think the variety show circuit is full of those weird, like Shields and Yarnell or another right. one where it's, it's just like, in retrospect, you're like people in the Midwest knew who opera people were and mimes. And it's just, it's, it's a, thing that I'm I'm a little sad is lost to yeah. time. And I honestly. I do think the PBS thing sort of can't be understated because like there were four channels and you know at this point there was cable right. but like in a pretty limited way. And so yeah, like especially if you were a kid, you were watching PBS and there she was. And it's it's a little sad that there is not really an opera star today who even approaches this kind of accessibility. Uh, like they're they're sort of like there are folks like Josh Groban who are sort of like opera adjacent, but he's not a real opera star. And then there's people like Renee Fleming who wishes she were Beverly right. Sills, but is not. Ooh. <laughs> and, I, and I don't, I don't mean that entirely disrespectfully. Like she's someone who is very interested in crossing over into anything that can be crossed over into. Like she did a show to the album. She did a straight play on Broadway. She did an indie rock album, but I would guess your average person on the street does not know who Renee Fleming is, would not recognize the name, would not recognize the face. Whereas the average person in the 70s probably would recognize the name, the face, Beverly Sills. This isn't quite not this episode, but it is 20 years before I saw it. In Jim Henson's works, there's the picture of Beverly Sills and Gonzo with spoons on their noses. 
Mm-hmm. And that was my entire frame of reference for her from the time I read that book in seventh grade until I saw the episode as a father 20 years later. But I always remembered her name because it's such a striking image, <laughs> you know, like it's always like, oh, yeah, that's famous opera star Beverly Sills of Spoon on Nose fame. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue. Why don't you get so, Anthony, apart from weird and uh, important memory of bonding with your child, uh, what do you think of the episode like in general? I love this one. I don't know if it's like top 10 favorite or anything, but definitely in the in the upper tier for me. I think everything works. I think everything every single sketch is fun. I think they use the guest star well and the parts without her are fun as well. Like I I love it. David? Yeah, same. You know, the way the Muppet Show worked is they would ask the guest star what they wanted to do, if there were particular Muppets they wanted to be in season with whatever. And Beverly Sills came to the writing staff and said sure i'll do opera but i can tap dance and i can sing other things and like i want to be able to show off these things and this is the right way to do it and i think that is such a smart choice because listen i'm not an opera guy either but i i'm enough of an opera guy that i've been to a handful of operas and i don't want to hear more than one number devoted to opera in the muppet show and so the fact that they figured out a way to have this person who is famous for being an opera star and use her really well in more than just a parody of opera, I think, like, unlocked such a perfect episode. Michal? Yeah, well said, David. I was not sure what to expect. And also, based on last week, my expectations were low and or confused. And also based on the long disclaimer that we got this week, I didn't know if they were going to go the Liberace route and just be like, we're going to get a ton of opera. And they didn't. I was very pleasantly surprised. My expectations were definitely exceeded. This was fabulous. It's the Muppet Show firing on all cylinders. I I don't know that it's a top, top 10, but it's it's an A episode. It's zany. It's got a horrible experimental Lovecraftian nightmare. <laughs> and Piggy's being a ham. And and Kermit is leaning into all of the zaniness. I, I love that about this episode, that Kermit is accepting that it's weird and he's making it weirder. And people who are put off by the weirdness has Kermit like egging them on and making it even more bizarre. I like that he's comfortable this episode. Uh, I know this is not what you meant, but I like the implication that we got the disclaimer because there's opera in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> we had different attitudes about things I mean, in the past and uh, <laughs> stories matter. Listen, there are definitely operas that would require the long disclaimer, especially as those operas would have been performed in the 70s. Solid point. Christy, how about you? Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. I, too, am not an opera guy, even though I played one once on national TV. <laughs> but I I think this is absolutely delightful. And it it feels very balanced. Like, it felt like, like a full, solid episode of The Muppet Show. There is the one thing that I deeply want to kill with fire, and we'll get there. But I love a guest star who comes in with no ego and is just down to clown. And... Beverly Sills absolutely was. Yeah, uh, we were supposed to record this a week ago and couldn't for reasons. And and so I, I watched this an extra time this week to refresh and I was delighted to do so. And honestly, even the thing that we all hate, I like got Stockholm syndromed into liking it by the third watch. <laughs> I, to, to, to be clear. Yeah, sorry, I sorry. Yeah, it. I, I, not on our stock, <laughs> I, know, I know that the three regular co-hosts hate it. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I did kind of remember this, uh, even though I had it confused with Mr. Rogers. Uh, that spoon on the nose image is definitely like a, a keeper <laughs> from my child brain. It's great. She's great. 
Uh, she's everything I want. I'm up at show guest star, and uh, let's get into it. Beverly Sills, 15 seconds to curtain, Beverly. Thank you, Scooter. I'm just warming up my voice. Wow, what a note. Oh, that's nothing. Ah. My glasses. <laughs> Don't worry, dear. I have a deal with an optician. <laughs> Okay, so there's two Lovecraftian nightmares in this episode. Oh, okay. Tell us about Scooter's <laughs> glasses, Adam. Well, so you know how his eyes are his glasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually, like, I looked at this really closely to see, like, did they add a layer? No, no, his eyes shatter. <laughs> like his pupils are also <laughs> yes. fragmented? It's not okay. It's very funny, but it's not okay. Well, she has a deal with an optician. He'll be okay. Yeah. Also, people get eaten and blown up on this show all the time. I, I, I don't think I don't think eye shattering is is that much more intense. <laughs> it's because me. we have eyes and we can. It, it's like just a little too visceral. Yeah. 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 But I also I love the joke. I love the the joke of like, oh, this happens to me all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll give you this guy's card. <laughs> also, Beverly's blouse in this scene is just worth a mention. It's obviously it's the, fabulous it's fabulous there will obviously be gifts of all of this uh on the show page it's, it's like just rainbow like, stripey like she's ready to go be joseph yeah it's just so <laughs> 70s it's great yeah. i was busy looking at scooter's glasses but i'll be sure to look for the gif hey, where'd this lobster come from newberg there's a lobster in the box and i tried looking up where newberg was because i assumed it was like a town in maine but it's not it's our i mean where it is is irrelevant because According to legend, Lobster Newberg was invented by a man named... I had to look up what the lobster was called because I don't know these things. man named Ben Wenberg, quote, a sea captain in the fruit trade. (laughs) And apparently this dish became popular at Delmonico's until an argument between Wenberg and Delmonico led to its removal from the menu. And it was reinstated by popular demand in anagram form as Lobster Newberg, I love which is that. a what phrase a that exists. <laughs> well, wait for it. It is a great story. Um, unfortunately, at least according to Wikipedia, Wikipedia cites a, a culinary historian who explains why this story has no basis in reality. Like they looked up Delmonico's menus and this didn't work out. So okay. sorry, Ben Wenberg, a sea captain in the fruit trade. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Uh, I, I went a step, well, not a step further. I went down a different path um, as a person who who does actually quite enjoy lobster to report to you that this sounds disgusting <laughs> <laughs> lobster newberg is an american seafood dish made from lobster butter cream so far so good cognac sherry and eggs with a secret ingredient found to be cayenne pepper nothing about that sounds weird or gross. Say, that's this sounds good to me cognac but, sherry and eggs yeah maybe even the sauce yeah well maybe i'll try it if i ever see it on a menu but uh, i don't I don't want cognac and sherry with my lobster. Unless sherry means something different in the Midwest. Anyway, back at the Muppet Show opening, Gonzo holds his trumpet up to his temple and he does a very convincing job of making it look like music is coming out of his head. It's really cute. I play by ear. I don't know if that's a joke that I got from the Muppet Show or if it's a joke that all children know that went into the Muppet Show, but that's definitely a thing I remember from being a kid. I didn't know that joke, but I'm glad I do now. Anyway, let's go backstage. The Muppet Show backstage. Backstage this week, basically the plot is Beverly Sills is here and it's a cause for celebration and also opera and also auditions for opera. Piggy first appears 
in a state of auditioning, even though she doesn't know there's going to be an audition. She's just lounging over the balcony outside her dressing room, and she's striking poses, and it is absolutely magnificent. Hello, Kermit. I didn't know you were there. Um, hello, Miss Piggy. How is the show going? Uh, uh, Piggy... Uh, please, uh, if you're if you're thinking about that opera piece, as far as I'm concerned, you are in the opera number. But it's really not up to me because Beverly Sills is holding some auditions a little later. Well, uh, dear, I am not worried. I just hope you're doing something suitable for my talents. Piggy, you're gonna love it. It's called Pigoletto. You're very welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, what a great episode. So Miss Piggy shows up in Beverly's dressing room to audition, and so does every other pig on the show. Kermit told me that uh, we were doing an opera. Yes, we are. Uh We're doing an opera called Pigoletto. Yes, and I bet I know why you're here. Well, I am a uh, pig. Yes, and I know you want to audition for the opera. Yes, how did you guess? Oh, honey, they're coming out of the woodwork. You see what I mean? I hate auditions. And then Link dribbles in with a basketball because he wants to know if it's the place to try out for the basketball team. And Strange Pork shows up with a kazoo. There's there's a night at the opera situation happening right in Beverly Sills' dressing room. I know this is not why we got the disclaimer, but I do wonder if any of this is offensive to Italian people later on, too. They're going to sing some fake. Just singing names of pasta. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I'm not bothered by it, but, you know, I, I wonder about these things from a cultural sensitivity standpoint. But but that's not why we got the long disclaimer. Oh, definitely no. not. <laughs> no, there's no question this week. I just the thing because it's a yeah. joke that they're going to come back to later, too. And I, I yeah. I do not know. I have never asked an Italian friend whether they're offended no. by And I, I suspect it's probably just like they don't speak Italian and they don't know the words. And so that's that's they're they're trying. They are trying. Beverly gets the chaos under control by detonating some TNT that she just happens to have on the table because why not? And she announces that everybody can be in the opera. So everybody's happy, uh, except for some cows and goats and otters and small frogs who accost Kermit backstage. There's an opera for us cows. What's that? Madam Buttermilk. Yeah! yeah. Hey, there's one for us goats, too. Hmm? Goat or Damarung. Mm. Yeah! Watch your language. Yeah. And there's even an opera for us otters, too. What's that? La Traviata. Yeah. That, that's enough, then. Come on, back to your dressing rooms. Come on, get out of here. Go on, go on, go on, go on. Scram, scram, scram. Uncle Kermit? Yeah? There's an opera for little frogs like me, too. Really? Low and green. <laughs> oh, babe. Yeah, Absolutely. Does a little it. dance. Uh, <laughs> so good. <laughs> like, I, I, even if you never look at our show notes, you have to go look at the gif of Robin doing his little happy dance. <laughs> he's so happy. He's like he's doing so proud of himself. scooter fists. It's, it's so, so great. And then Kermit yells at him to leave. And then... Kermit, who, have I mentioned, is really into the weirdness this episode, he's like, oh, I could play the lead in Low and Green. He squishes his little head into his little body. He's totally submerged. And then he wanders off screen (laughs) singing. Gee, 
I could play the lead if I scrunch down. <laughs> well, that's what I love is Robin doing the little dance, the little side to side dance. Yeah. It's so cute. And then Kermit scrunching down is kind of putting a hat on a hat, but it's so cute also. And so like just odd that I love it also. It's perfect. Yeah. I love the idea that like, and this comes through at her performance, like right, everybody is just is happy that Beverly Sills is there. And it's like, it's sort of infectious and they all are like getting into the opera. And I, I also like the, I mean, the puns are so funny and just like smart. Cause you don't really have to know anything about opera to have probably heard most of those titles and get it. And it's just, I don't know. I just, I love it. Much like Robin little dance. I had to look some up, but they're on the Muppet wiki. There you go. Yeah. Also in Beverly's dressing room, this episode, Gonzo barges in with an urgent cultural breakthrough. Meanwhile, and at the same time, just outside the dressing room, Sam is preparing himself to meet the world-famous soprano Beverly Sills and exclaims that he must go in and worship at her feet. Well, I have created a new art form. Really? Yes. This will rank with the creation of the first opera. It's a cultural breakthrough. Well, what is it? Spoon hanging! Spoon hanging? Yes! Look, let me show you how it's done. Here, take a spoon. Okay. Now where do we hang it? Aha! That's the cultural part. Miss Sills, I want you to know what a thrill... What's the matter? Don't you like art? Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Ah, it's so beautiful. My favorite thing about it, besides it being burned into my brain for since 1997, as I said, is the fact that Gonzo refers to the nose, so hanging a spoon specifically on your nose, as being the cultural part. Anywhere else, yeah. <laughs> I can't even imagine <laughs> what that means. Like, I, I definitely, as a child, spent a decent amount of time trying to hang a spoon from my nose. Oh, 100%. And... I think our spoons are too heavy, but I was able to do it at school. (laughs) Still not a fashion podcast, but I have to point out Beverly's suit, which is also amazing. And in both these dressing room scenes, but they, they style it differently, which was a a clever touch. It's just great. Her whole wardrobe is, some of it is astonishingly ugly, but still great. We'll get to it. Um, (laughs) You don't want those tap shoes. It's not the shoes, it's the dress, ah. but the suit, the suit is like legitimately like sort of amazing. <laughs> um, so we've mentioned the, the long disclaimer, that's the unskippable 12 second warning that Disney Plus gives you. Uh, so you know you're in for something super duper hardcore racist. And fortunately, we get that over and done with before this episode even hits the two minute mark. So uh, before we toss it to Christy, we're going to introduce the opening number. So I'll just say for listeners, we're going to in this clip the racist thing is going to be described but then we're not going to hear that part and and we probably don't even need to talk about it but here it is but first an opening number oh no i can't take any more of your opening numbers come on guys what's wrong with them they're so weird yeah what do you have tonight a chinese gorilla dancing ballet (laughs) cancel the opening number yeah so they do in fact have a gorilla speaking mock Chinese, which I, I think we can agree whether or not yelling names of pasta is offensive to Italian people. Yelling mock Chinese is uh, more offensive. Yeah. And actually, the mock Chinese is at least some some of it is also 
food. Yeah. But he um, definitely which, says chop suey. Yeah. So, um, but also yeah. like the design of the puppet. Yeah. Oh, it's bad. It's real bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. So, anyway, they canceled that opening number. Here's what we get instead. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about our opening number this time, but let's let Sattler and Waldorf take it away first. Take ten terrific girls, but only nine costumes, and you're cooking up something grand. <laughs> Mix in some amber lights yes. and elegant scenery, then stir in a fine jazz band. Then add some funny men ho, ho. and pepper with laughter. It's tart and tasty, I know. Then serve it piping hot. And what have you got? A burlesque show. Yeah, this is uh, a song called Take Ten Terrific Girls. Uh, the was written for a movie uh, from 1968 called The Night They Raided Minsky's uh, by Charles Strauss and Lee Adams. And if you're not a theater nerd, but those names sound familiar, it's because we just talked about them in uh, the last episode. Uh, They were the songwriters of Bye Bye Birdie who were among the writers called in to do some ghostwriting on Hello, Dolly. (laughs) And as of now, knock on wood, both of these dudes are still with us. Strauss is 95 and Adams is 99. And uh, the night they raided Minsky's, I just watched today. It is delightful. It takes place in 1925 in a burlesque house. And it's like zany and weird and just full of wild characters with names like Professor Spatz and Trim Houlihan and Pockets. (laughs) (laughs) Elliot Gould's in that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, listeners may know him from the Sexy Grover picture. (laughs) (laughs) And only that. Yep. Yeah. If you don't, it's Elliot Gould who's actually not Grover, but <laughs> I mean, they're posed together <laughs> in a sexy fashion. Um, yeah, no, uh, Elliot Gould plays the, the titular Minsky. Yeah, uh, and it it's a lot of fun, although I did have this really upsetting realization. So this movie was made in 1968 and it takes place in 1925. And I was Uh-oh. like, oh, oh that's the, the time g- gap back to like like 1980 from now yeah i was like doing the math like that's that's younger than me (laughs) that's fewer years than i am old yeah yeah it's it's not not great um but anyway yeah the movie is on pluto uh so you can watch it for free it's delightful um and they tried to make it into uh, a stage show in 2009 just called minsky's uh charles strauss brought in bob martin to write the book and susan bergenhead to add some lyrics and uh for some reason it never made it uh, I can tell you why. It's because oh, okay. it was it was a passion project for Mike Algren, who was a director, uh, uh, who was married to choreographer Susan Stroman, uh, and Mike sadly passed away without his like singular vision for it. It, it didn't quite come together, which um, is really too bad. Uh, I saw it in LA and I thought it was great. I've never seen the movie, uh, but if anybody listening to this cares, like I don't know, Bob Martin, I'm sure you're not listening, but uh, it was great. I thought it was fantastic. That's that's Slings and Arrows, Bob Martin. It is so? Slings and Arrows, Jeffrey okay. Chaperone, Bob Martin. Awesome. So, yeah, let, let's talk about the staging here. You all have mentioned many times on this podcast about how Philip Casson's uh, episodes are more inventive visually than Peter Harris's episodes. And this number is like a perfect example of that. 
because we are getting new angles on the set constantly. And again, t- talking about watching this for the first time in the middle of the night, I gasped multiple times <laughs> when we're like seeing the the no smoking uh, sign on on stage, and you know the the shots where we see like part of the camera next to Waldorf or whatever. It's just there's so many like new and exciting things to look at in this in this number in a way that I don't know the Muppet Show has ever looked like before. Mm. Yeah, and they're showing new parts of the theater, or like new to us angles, because they're like bringing on the scenery, and Statler and Waldorf like are suddenly backstage getting everybody ready. I also wrote down uh, because they they have a couple of costume changes. They like take off their little jackets, and they're there. And I wrote down Statler in a vest, definitely bisexual energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my big takeaway from from this section of them sort of redoing the theater for the number is that Jim Henson may have been a genius, but I think Richard Hunt was the better puppeteer of character uh, because watching the two old men. And now I'm going to, I'm going to get the names wrong in terms of who puppeteers who, but the one that's Jim is sort of bouncing around in a way that could just as easily be Kermit. And the one that is Richard moves like an old man very specifically. And uh, I appreciated that. Yeah. Speaking of bad puppeteering, so this uh, this number culminates in a, a big chorus line uh, of mostly whatnots and Janice, and which Eddie. I do and not Eddie understand. Soup. Well, I mean, remember in season one, Janice was a showgirl. Well, right, but now she's Janice, so I think it's mm-hmm. weird. But also Annie Sue, which makes sense that she would be there. I guess it is a little weird that they're all whatnots and then these two characters. Right. Although my my kids were furious that Piggy wasn't in this number. Like, Interesting. Like truly angry, like they were just like, why would why would that other pig be there and not because Piggy, Piggy what is not perform in the chorus, right? <laughs> uh, but that other pig looks dead. Like I, something. I mean, and I, 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 either these were these were being puppeteered, like you know, one on each hand, and it was somebody's wrong hand, or they just had needed extra people to fill this out. But like, and I, this is not a thing I probably would have noticed before we started doing this podcast. Like her eyeline is just entirely in the wrong place. Like. It's 1979. Maybe she was, you know, doing something backstage. But uh, it, it's it's rough, rough times for Annie Sue. <laughs> She's fallen on hard times too, just like City Opera. <laughs> I also just want to point out that when they're bringing in the set, uh, Bo says only three bars to go. But like, it's a vamp. It's just going to take as long as it's going to take. <laughs> Bless his heart. <laughs> I did like to see Beaker as a stagehand, which we've seen before. Uh, but I think we'll see more frequently in the remainder of the series. That vamp goes on for so long, and they're setting up the set for so long that I thought that they like it was going to be a whole concept episode with this burlesque framing because it just felt like a lot of of stuff, which turned into nothing because it never comes back. Yeah, I can see that. The night then- they raided the Muppet Theater. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's also a moment where Statler and Waldorf have they they put on these like adorable pink pinstripe suits and they're they're telling terrible jokes and you get Fozzie up in the box yelling boo hiss bring on the bear which is also wonderful. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's it's beautiful. Uh, now, why can't they do numbers like that? We just did. Uh, yeah, so you did. Uh, wasn't very good after all. Uh, ooh! Oh. Terrible!
I love the way that this exactly predates every Broadway musical Facebook group. <laughs> yep. Why don't they do shows like this anymore? You mean the one you're discussing that you just saw? <laughs> <laughs> well, rest assured, I made gifts of uh, several of these moments with captions, so you can use them <laughs> for all your reactions. In all your Facebook groups. Theater, social media. <laughs> so we get a pretty impressive display impressive and amusing display of some of beverly souls's lesser known talents when it's run of time and What are we going to do about it? I'll ask Kermit. Wait a minute. <laughs> what am I supposed to do out here all by myself while you do that? Well, I, you, you, uh, you wouldn't know how to tap dance, would you? Well, as a matter of fact, I do know how to tap dance. Knock him dead. <laughs> and then she does a stare bit and everybody applauds. It's great. It's so great. So yeah, this is a, a song called When the Bloom is on the Sage from 1930, written by Fred Howard Wright and Nat Vincent, the Happy Chappies, who I learned about uh, on a Writers in the Sky wiki. There really is a wiki for everything. And it's been recorded by a lot of familiar Western favorites, uh, Bing Crosby, Sons of the Pioneers, and uh, Gene Autry in a movie called Roundup Time in Texas. Yeah, this is delightful <laughs> i am such a sucker for the bit of classical singer sings a wildly inappropriate genre of music are you familiar with the most unwanted song christy no it's a novelty song from the late 90s where people did a, a survey of like what components do you want to see in your music and so they made a most wanted song that's like exactly three minutes and eight seconds or whatever it is. And like, it's it has a duet and it's about love and it contains a saxophone solo, whatever. And then the most unwanted song goes on for like 20 minutes. It has a children's chorus, opera, rapping, um, an opera singer rapping, and an opera singer yodeling and doing cowboy music. And also the uh, uh, people didn't want to hear about holidays. So every so often, like whatever terrible thing is going on, the children's chorus will interrupt by singing about like Labor Day, Labor Day, do all your shopping at Walmart, because they also didn't want commercialism in their song. It's it's <laughs> wonderful and terrible. And uh, this was like that, but uh, more concise and better. Totally. I brought a clip of a thing that tickles that same part of my brain. <laughs> Yes, Thank that you. is indeed the Vienna Boys Choir singing Talking Heads Burning Down the House. Um, <laughs> it's from yeah. a, a really delightful album called Vienna Boys Choir Goes Pop. They do Madonna songs. They do all kinds of things. But the cool 
Pink babies. It's just a thing that will like come to me unbidden like once a month and I giggle all over again. <laughs> um, I like that there's two ways this could have gone. Like, uh, surely she is capable of singing this song without doing opera voice, I, I imagine. So she could have just, it could have been like, I'm going to sing country. That's the thing. I'm going to do another thing. But that they did the opera joke and then layered the tap dancing on top of it to be the here's a talent you didn't have Beverly Sills had. Like, I just, it's just perfect. Yeah. And it's like, it's this thing that's like, a, it's, it's a dramaturgical thing that I talk about all the time on the podcast, but I don't care. Like, why would Fozzie's introduction change what she and the band were planning on performing? It shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, why yeah. does she walk on and say, could I have some music for this? Well, right. Yeah. She, why does she have no idea what's happening? But it's great. It's perfect. I love it. Yeah. Dramaturgically, it makes sense. Yeah, because it, it also immediately underlines the amazing contrast between her like very like deep throaty New York speaking voice and then her you know mellifluous soprano. It's uh, it's so good. Although I will say there was a missed opportunity for some pig indignation with the the line with bacon frying. I kept expecting somebody to pop out and have something to say about that. But. Yeah, <laughs> but it was already perfect. So it's true. And this set was so pretty i i wanted like this this looked like the first page of a dr seuss book like something whimsical was going to happen oh the years you will ha (laughs) (laughs) today and this was not meant for hd uh i like could not stop staring at these like two huge pieces of tape on the stairs which were either holding down cables of some sort or like holding like covering seams in the set and like they're just so glaring, but like I'm positive that nobody could see them when this was made, and they were like, "It's white tape on a white stair. It's fine," <laughs> even though it's like a totally different texture and shine. I just it is I, fine. Yeah, it totally. I mean, it's totally fine. Who cares? But like, it's just like a, a technological thing that I find interesting. That like they knew they could get away with it then, and you know, could not have imagined that turning into this. Also worth mentioning, speaking of the set, uh, the, the good part's not the tape. Uh, for his work in this episode, art director Malcolm Stone received the first of two Emmy Award nominations for The Muppet Show, and Callista Hendrickson received her second of two Emmy Award nominations. Nice. And for rightly cost- so. For costumes, yes. Yeah, both well-deserved. Everything yeah. looks great. We'll, we'll get to Pigoletto, but they're already earning it. Uh, I mentioned this dress earlier, and I, I don't know if any of us know the answers. This might be another question for your mom. Christy, but would this dress that she's wearing have been considered fancy? Like, is this is this a, a gown for her aria, for her recital? It felt costumey to me. Like, it yeah. felt like opera costumey, but I might dial a boomer and we can add it. I'm cur- I'm just so curious because, like, her, her dressing room clothes are all, like, very smart, very 70s, like, definitely not attractive by today's standards, but, like, you know, it's like a silk blouse that my mom would have worn to work. And then she has like an opera costume, like a costume costume in the, in the last number. And then this is like something else. Maybe sort of halfway between opera costume and variety show costume. Mm. Like I could picture her and Cher and Mama Cass wearing different versions of this singing a trio on the Carol Burnett show. Like, right. Oh man. Makes sense. Cher would wear the one shoulder version. Oh, absolutely. Does anyone want to talk about Fozzie or should we move on? I mean, Fozzie yelling wahaha is one of the greatest things in the universe. (laughs) There's also a great bit where Kermit comes back and finds out what happened. And Fozzie just says, don't yell at me, which I also (laughs) definitely made a gift of for all your reaction needs. (laughs) Well, that's telling. 
an opera singer who tap dances and sings cowboy songs. I wonder if there's anything she isn't good at. Yes, choosing what show to be on. <laughs> Miss Sill seemed to have a lot of fun in that number. Oh, yeah, I think so. Well, you know, it was a change for her. And speaking of something completely different. Yeah. It, Weird that they yeah. put a hat on that, but uh, yeah, still yeah. cute. Yeah, speaking of, of, of a change, someday I we're going to have to do like a definitive ranking of the worst UK spots. And for me, this one is undoubtedly in the top five. Shut it down. So, like earlier, I said this is the weirdest episode of the Muppet Show. And I got shot down, but this thing has Muppera in it. So there's nothing weirder. Christy, what is it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, what is it? Uh, what is it? So We've broken both Christy and Anthony, but for different reasons. <laughs> so, yep, yep. Yeah, so this, this is a thing called Muppera, and literally the only information I have about it is that it's a, a Derek Scott situation. So it is original to the Muppet Show. Thank God. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think the song is what's important here at oh, all. You no. know, like, so, well, no, but that's Christy's job. So. Although course, the song doesn't help. No. Sure. Uh, I mean, the song is barely there, and its job is not to call attention to itself because there's it a lot does, going on. Because it has that weird like chirping, so you know it'd be it'd be very different if they were singing something with words or even or even like do, do, doing. But or yelling veggie carbonara. But what they're doing instead just like, I don't know, makes you think too much about their mouths. Yeah. <laughs> but I, their yeah. mouths are the point. Yeah. I okay. know, and I hate it. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. my okay. problem okay. with beards, but we can describe what's going on. Let's let's rip the band-aid off. So, okay. So what this is, is Muppet Wiki describes it as Chen puppets. But what it is, is it's Jim Henson and Jerry Nelson, two bearded gentlemen, uh, upside down. <laughs> with puppet eyes and features in their beards <laughs> and their mouths as part of the puppet. And uh, I, at first, when we when we first started talking about this... And, and, uh, then, and then bodies with outfits. And they have little the outfits. Yeah, right, like covering their nose. Right, it takes you a while to realize that what you're looking at yeah. is... Their their chins with features because there's there's so much else going on that is making up these puppets. Like their chins have features <laughs> and their beards are their heads, and their mouths. And the are bodies their mouths. are like covered in metals or jewelry or something. Yeah, they're very ornate, which is also interesting because they they achieve this rather than hanging upside down or like you know lying on a table or whatever. Um, they just turn the camera around. Uh, and the costumes sort of give it away because there are some things that are hanging, hanging up in the because, wrong direction. Yeah, it's, right? it's yeah. an interesting choice. Um, yeah, it just it it lives in the same like uncanny valley, unholy place that like the clutch cargo gags that Conan O'Brien used to do lives, and like there's that whole I don't know if it's a whole genre of movies or what, but like there's that guy. 
uh, Steve Odekirk, who does the like talking thumb movies. The, the thumb movies, yeah, yeah, bad. so bad. What? Don't explain it. It's fine. I don't need to know. But what? You don't, you, I you would don't. say in the Muppet world, the thing that is closest to this is maybe the gay pride Langolier from the Twiggy episode. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. In that, yeah, there's like they're, real they're related for sure. Well, like, I just think there's nothing. I mean, yeah, I can see what you're saying there with the with the Twiggy episode. But, like, they didn't do this kind of weird, like, when they would have the occasional, like, experimental puppeteer on to do shadow puppets or whatever. You know, in season one and two, I think, Bruce Schwartz or whatever. Yeah. But, like, the Muppet puppeteers themselves, they don't do this kind of weird experimental thing on the show. So the fact that they do here, and it's this, it's the UK spot, and it's, like, two minutes of it, it's just the strangest thing ever made. It's, and it's very, like, very, very, very I, strange. I don't know that I, like I said, I love it and I do, but like, is it good? No, of course it's not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, It's just fascinating. I just yeah, can't I, believe it exists. Yeah. I'm, I, I, my initial response when they came on, I remember like I was sort of slacking, like, you know, without spoiling, like, oh my God, this episode is great. And then I think I just typed, oh no. <laughs> but uh-huh. but I'm, <laughs> I, am, I am more with you than not, Anthony. Like my original reaction was to be turned off by them, but there is like something charming in the weirdness and also like the skill like that they are because they do have arms and so they are puppeteering arms, arms are like down. going up while they're singing yeah like, like yeah i don't know it's well done for the nightmare that it is yeah yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. to be fair when we watched it in my home my husband the minute this started says i don't know what this is but i love it already uh it just shows the opposites attract so there you go i <laughs> I, th- I think we've talked about this on the podcast. I know we've talked about it among ourselves, but um, how in modern uh, Muppet things, they always green screen out the rods. And I'm always like, we know they're puppets. It's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why are you doing this? In this, they green screened out the rods. Did it help? That's true. I I don't think it necessarily matters, but like considering what a weird illusion it is, it definitely was like one more piece of the... I didn't even notice... Stuff the arms moving honestly because i was just so I couldn't like turn away from the terrible mouth yeah i mean like and i'm not opposed to this either like this is a cool experiment and i i'm not mad that they did it and also like mouths are terrifying <laughs> I, I was just proud i may not be able to name all the members of the jug huggers but i was able to identify uh-huh. jerry and jim's chins before they even made a sound that rules well done we're all very proud and also mouths are terrifying I do agree that if it had been a real song or something that wasn't, you know, 42% noises, uh, (laughs) that I I would have been at least partially won over by the craft of it. But it's just a a, a bridge too far. Yeah. I mean, it it, it kind of made sense that they were just doing nonsense and that for the last few seconds, Jim's just going... That's the big finish. I mean, listen, we were never meant to see this. This was really for British eyes only. <laughs> <laughs> so I I specifically asked to be on this episode. And was I got this be, why? Like, this was 100% why. I, <laughs> I, I, was this I, wounds. I needed to be here for this conversation. And I'm so glad I was. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. Please treasure this forever. Yeah. I didn't understand all of it, but I'm certain the English people enjoyed it. <laughs> well, in the category of things that Sam would certainly enjoy, let's partake of some 
high culture. So here we are in the aforementioned Pigoletto, and the conceit of this is that uh, Beverly Sills is attempting to sing uh, an aria uh, called Sempre Libera from uh, Verdi's La Traviata, but she's continually interrupted by pigs singing the only bits of opera that they know. Yeah, that was the Toreador song from Carmen. Shout out to Richard Hunt and his actual singing skills. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and he, and he used that exact same voice on Sesame Street later as Placido Flamingo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly the same delivery. Yeah. I love, love it. it. Yeah. So uh, we have our Toreadors. And then, of course, we have Piggy's literally grand entrance. <laughs> So yeah, that's the Grand March from Aida, which is also Verdi. So this is an opera I know something about because Elton John and Tim Rice turned it into a musical. Uh-huh. <laughs> but does that is she Amneris in this? See, so there I, we just, go. I just thought that she was like, like, eh, it's Egypt. I'm right. just going to be Cleopatra and call right. it a day. Why not? She already had the wig. I think you mean Cleopigtra. Cleopigtra, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so of course, uh, because Piggy is a diva and Beverly Sills is a diva, we have a, a diva off. Should have made a shorter <laughs> clip of that. It's the same joke for thirty-five seconds. No, but this I, was the, the oh yeah. Just makes it's it. also so impressive. Like I mean, both Beverly Sills genuinely impressive for what she can do, but also very impressive what Frank Oz is doing there. Uh huh. In its way, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, there, and there there is actual underlying music there. That that's some Wagner. That's the Wotan uh, battle cry from Die Valkyrie. It did make me wonder, like. Did Frank, do you think that he trained his voice so that he could access more of his falsetto to do Piggy? Or is he just really good at it? <laughs> it's a good question. question, because if you listen to Piggy's big number in the Muppet movie, you would not think that he would be able to do what we just heard him do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also, I mean, this isn't about Frank necessarily, but I we talked a couple weeks ago about um, how surprised I was to learn from and Muppets of Men that they 
largely sang live on set, or the the humans did at least. And uh, she is very clearly lip syncing in this. So I I imagine that that they, for good reason, everyone had some time to get this right, you know, and do it once on a recording, and then and then. Uh, performed to the track, which I think is absolutely the right choice. I'm not shading anyone for lip syncing in this situation. Yeah, there's very good reason to not do a piggy singing while also puppeteering. Right, and if they had multiple takes, and you know, it just would have killed everybody, so. Yeah. (laughs) But, and Frank does such a physical performance when he puppeteers that I I wouldn't want to make anybody, you know, try to do what Piggy's doing with their voice (laughs) and also perform her. So then in the next section, we get some actual Rigoletto, which is also dirty. <laughs> Let me apologize for all these other guys. They've done it wrong again. Sometimes all you Tell her that you're sorry. Nobody will sorry. Won't you give next us for being here I think it's funnier for being Dr. Strangepork there, too. Like, it could easily have just been a random pig, but the fact that it's like that silly Dr. Strangepork German accent, you know, <laughs> singing. <laughs> but I don't not know. singing it Wagner. Laugh. <laughs> right. Right, right. Yeah. But that they all apologize for being here at all is just especially over the top somehow. We at least get a glorious finish. <laughs> Also, shout out to Irving Berlin, who wrote God Bless America. <laughs> Actually, not in the public domain. And the royalties from God Bless America go to the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. Hmm. Neat. Fun fact. So, big finish? Big finish. Huge. So there's a lot happening here. And in lieu of going deep on any of it, I decided since the majority of what we hear is Verdi, that I would find some goofy fun facts about one Giuseppe Verdi, born in 1813, died in 1901. His parents were innkeepers. All right. Uh, His uh, second wife's name was Giuseppina. And I, I just was like, how confusing do things get in their house? I Watch mean, it. I don't know, Adam. How confusing <laughs> do things get in their house? I don't know, Adam. I assume it was fine in their house. Oh, it's only confusing <laughs> for other people. Here's a funny thing, though. Verdi's music career started at the age of eight when, uh, well, this part's not funny. His music teacher died, and his music teacher also happened to be the church organist. So he stepped in. So just the, the image of an eight year old. <laughs> you got to go on, kid. Organist. I just tickled me. I'm I'm delighted by it. And I learned a fun thing about Aida specifically. It was commissioned by the Egyptian government to open the Khedival Opera House, which was built to celebrate the opening of the Suez Canal and sadly burned down in 1971. And it's now a parking garage. <laughs> what a weird choice for the Egyptian government to commission an opera of an Egyptian story in Italian. Yeah. 
Uh, speaking of which, this backdrop is phenomenal. Uh, There's a lot going it, on. Yeah, so it starts off as being like sort of Venice-y, which I, is that relevant to Rigoletto? I don't know, maybe. I mean, sounds Italian. But the Kremlin is there. Uh, there's some pyramids. There's something else that I don't quite know what's happening. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. We were talking earlier about how great this episode looks. There's a shot here where we like pan across the set as Beverly Sills is singing. And I feel like we don't get that much camera movement on that wide of an angle. Yeah. On the Muppet Show very often. And again, like another gasp moment for me. I saw this. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of set to show off. Yeah. Also, I just want to say in the HD files, Beverly Sills, a very freckly lady. I don't think that's a thing that would have necessarily read on 70s TV. She also looks like she has lipstick all over her teeth, which feels unlikely even for SD television. But like, it's just, it was, again, a, a not a not for HD moment. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business. So even after that opera marathon, there's a little bit of show business here. We've got a Muppet News flash. Uh, let's hear the clip. Soprano Beverly Sills withdrew her announced plans to retire from the operatic stage. I'll be singing opera until the cows come home, she said today in a... (laughs) After which he is, of course, stampeded by a herd of cows. And surely you've heard of cows. Muppet University is a sketch that happens. (laughs) Um... Sam, is, this is the other really weird thing. This is really weird. <laughs> That's and, fair. Oh yeah, no, this is really weird. You're right. Yeah. I sort of it's really weird. It. it has these uh, look around you vibes. Look, look around you being a strange British thing from the early 2000s that made fun of like educational videos that you'd have to watch in school and then get tested on. Uh, this is that like right down to the music that they use. But so you have Sam, um, and because it's a university, he's wearing a little mortarboard hat, and he's here to present an educational segment. Sam shows us a drop of pond water under a microscope with uh, creepy educational music playing, and he's horrified to learn that this is not as educational as he would have hoped. Leaving frivolity behind, let us now explore the world of the water drop. Lights, please. Ah, what wonders await our eyes. Kermit the Protozoa here. And what a show we have for you. And now to kick things off, here he is, the king of the single cell comics, Fozzy Amoeba. (laughs) And then Fozzy Amoeba, who is like a a Fozzy version of the Pride Langolier. Um, It's so much cuter. Oh, much cuter, for sure. And yeah, Kermit the Protozoa is like Kermit's head with like a velociraptor rough body around him <laughs> um and, yeah and with insane uh, like much yeah. weirder eyes than creepy what swirly had. eyes yeah they're swirly yeah yeah but fozzy amoeba tells a version of the he said he had another bite biting week so i bit him joke and i learned that that joke the so i bit him bit has its own muppet wiki page because the muppet wiki is the gift that keeps on giving oh i also learned that fozzy tells a version of this joke in a computer game from 1984 called Welcome Aboard, A Muppet Cruise to Computer Literacy. 
1984. So this and th- there's beautiful art from this game, not from the game itself, which is it is very much from 1984. But there's there's a whole insert with a glossary of computer terminology with beautiful illustrations. And you can look all of this up on Muppet Wiki. The, the Muppet Guide to Computerese is just a delight. Anyway, there's also this sketch. <laughs> I'm very excited to read that. There's a, just a, from a technical standpoint, I, I'm pretty sure like, the prop has been like doctored to make it look more sciencey, but like Sam's thing is an overhead projector, I'm pretty sure, just a real one. And then they put this slide up of the pond water and then zoom in on it. And I don't, I didn't see a cut. So I think that Fozzie and Kermit are just chroma keyed over that. It's just very simple and very, and very clever. And it like, it, it really holds up. Yeah, this works. I mean, it's, it's weird and experimental and bizarre. And again, Kermit is leaning into the weirdness and Sam says this was a disaster afterwards. And Kermit's like, Oh no, I learned something. I learned that those protozoas are pretty funny. Yeah, that's pretty good. What's <laughs> weird to me about this is it, it feels like it could be the start of a new recurring sketch, but as far as I can tell, it is not. Yeah, right. it's the only one. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and I, I think that's why my memory of this episode is that it's such a strange one. Is this and Muppera in the same episode? Like, which both don't feel like anything else in five seasons. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, like there are two sketches here that are just completely one-offs and and very bizarre and to that point just fun fun trivia fazi amoeba is in the center for puppetry arts in atlanta uh, i've seen him there'll be a picture in the show notes but i can't believe they kept it <laughs> right right because it was never used again like i guess some of those puppets are are re remade for those exhibits but i don't i don't know why they would have bothered remaking that one yeah. i mean somebody put a lot of work into what fazi would look like as an amoeba it's he's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Kevin. Oh, thank you, Beverly. You're you're a great sport to put up with all of our goofiness. Oh, not at all. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. As a matter of fact, doing the Muppet Show is almost as much fun as doing a serious opera. Wow. Does that mean you'd like to come back next week? I said almost. <laughs> Beverly, Beverly, does this mean that you are forsaking spoon hanging for some lesser art form? <laughs> what a great episode. Well, here we are. We've reached the end. Before we go, uh, Anthony, where can people find you? Do you have anything you want to plug right now? So I co-host a podcast for Tough Pigs. I think you mentioned this up front called Moving Right Along, a Muppet movie podcast. And we are between seasons right now. But our most recent bonus episode, if you if you look at our feed, is an interview with Robert Kraft, who was the CEO of Jim Henson Records a thing that only existed for a couple of years in the 90s. And then he was the head of film and TV music at 20th Century Fox for about 20 years. Hmm. So we interviewed the guy who produced like the Titanic soundtrack, uh, but we talked to him about Kermit Unpigged and Muppet Beach Party. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he was so gracious and so like, seemed amused and excited to talk about this very short stint as the head of this failed Muppet label. Uh, I think it's, I think it's one of our better uh, guest episodes that we like guest interviews that we've done on the show. So if you uh, are a fan of Muppet music and you probably are, if you're listening to this show, go check out that interview. Cause I, I think it turned out really well. So that's on moving right along. 
Oh, and I, I should also say, because I'm I'm back on public social media, if listeners so desire, they can follow me on Blue Sky, where my handle is Derwood Clapper, after a character from a short-lived Muppet mobile game. <laughs> Good. Good. Wait, should people also follow your, your rankings of Pixar movies? I, I mean, they can. Yeah, they can follow me on Letterboxd also at, at Zeppo Marxist. Where, yeah, I'm ranking Pixar movies right now. My family and I are watching all of them in order and making a, a food item to go with each one. But we're almost nice. done. We'll be done by the time this comes out. Oh, man. Then you'll have the definitive ranking of Pixar movies. So definitely check it out. Yeah. Wake up. Mm. Who's the guest star tonight? Beverly Hills? Uh, I've been there before. Mm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks to gamble on our discussion of the Kenny Rogers episode. You can find us on social media at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. You can buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com slash store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Well, because, you know. I know. <laughs> but still.